Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. I'm going to try to knock out this whole chapter today. So 30 verses, kind of three different accounts here. And as we do this, we're going to see what it means to trust like a child. To trust Christ like a child. We've got three different accounts, one about marriage, one about children, and then one about money. And as we do this, we'll see this central idea that we should trust Jesus with childlike trust. We should trust Jesus with childlike trust. If you follow along in your Bibles, we'll read the first 12 verses now, Matthew 19, 1 through 12. Matthew writes, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been made, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Well, as you can tell, there are no tricky or awkward subjects here in this passage, so this should be pretty simple here for us this morning. But perhaps you sit here this morning and you reflect on life, and if I were to ask you, maybe do a survey of the congregation, what is your favorite Disney movie? Now, perhaps, you know, different ones might come to mind, maybe more recent hits, or maybe you're more of a classic, you're a fan of classics, or and, but I think if we were to kind of say, okay, let's, let's strike all of them, but let's take the fairy tales. What's your favorite fairy tale? And you might not be able to agree maybe on, on what's your favorite, but perhaps there's no fairy tale that's more a paradigm for every other fairy tale than the Cinderella story. I mean, we have Cinderella stories, and it's kind of made its way into really all of life. I mean, if you watch Marsh Madness or any sports, they, you know, if, 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 if David beats Goliath, they call it a Cinderella story. The, 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 this unlikely tale, this happily ever after ending. I mean, and what's, what's happier than thinking, you know, of a boy searching for a girl, they meet, and I don't know, there's this lost shoe and the shoe fits, if the shoe fits, wear it, and you get married and you live happily ever after. Isn't that how it worked for you? Fairy tales. And so sometimes we think of marriage, we think of marriage like a fairy tale. In fact, occasionally you'll walk into someone's home and you'll see some sort of, I don't know, calligraphy to kind of saying on a wall, and I might say something like, ours is the best fairy tale, or ours, our marriage is like a fairy tale that never ends. And of course, when you enter into a relationship like that, there's part of you that hopes it's happily ever after, but when I sit down with couples as they're preparing for marriage, and, and I try to help them anticipate what's to come, I say, don't think of it as a fairy tale, think of it as war. Now, that's not really, now don't, 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 don't get too far ahead of me here, 
I'm not talking about being at war with your spouse. Now, sometimes that happens, and it feels like a war that way. But what I say is you are going to have to fight for the health of your marriage. It's something that requires endurance. It requires commitment. There are days when you'll sail through life, and it feels like, okay, we got this. And there are other days when it feels like no matter how hard you fight, you can't do it. I mean, there's your own selfishness you've got to fight. That's your biggest enemy. But then you got, you got all kinds of things, bad things, temptations around, but you also just got life. You've got to fight to create time for each other, Cre- fight to create a relationship that, that kindles itself and grows and, and is nourished over time. It's a fight to maintain and build a good marriage. It doesn't just happen. Well, in verses 1 to 2, Jesus is traveling, and as he travels along, he's going to address this idea. Jesus has spent most of his ministry in the northern region of Israel here around Galilee. Now Jesus is traveling south to Judea. And this traveling south is a little bit different than others. Because as you know, Jews often traveled south to Jerusalem, but this is going to be the last time that Jesus leaves Galilee. You see, now he's, he's setting his face toward Jerusalem. He's setting his face toward the cross. And as he does, this is going to be the last time he's ministered in Galilee until after the resurrection. He travels to there, and as Jews often do, he actually travels kind of uh, east across the Jordan, then back west over into Judea. They did this often to avoid unfriendly Samaritan areas. When he gets there, he's approached by a group, and this group asks him a question, and in his answer, Jesus addresses the sanctity of marriage in verses 1 through 12. This is one of two times that Jesus addresses marriage and divorce. The first time is in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. This second time isn't just Jesus teaching, it's him responding to a trap. Verse 3, Pharisees tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus then teaches us why marriage is important. Well, the Pharisees know what the law says. They're not asking Jesus because they don't know. They're asking him to trap him. You see, first century Jewish society is a heavily male-dominated society. And this bled into marriage where where husbands have easy-in, easy-out clauses to marriage. They can get in easily and they can get out easily. This wasn't so for wives. Well, because of this, the law in Deuteronomy chapter 24 provided this thing called a certificate of divorce. This was not to allow men to easily get out of marriage, but it was actually to protect a wife. Because what could happen is, because um, in, in this context, the, the, the husband has so much power, he can decide he doesn't like his wife, kick her out of the home, for all intents and purposes, divorce her, leave her on his own. But if she didn't take with her a certificate of divorce, she was still bound to her husband. And so he could take someone else into his home, and for all intents and purposes, live, live as if they were divorced. And then at any time, he could say, no, I want you back. And so the certificate of divorce was really a legal protection for her. You see, a husband could divorce his wife, but a wife typically, there were exceptions, but typically a wife couldn't divorce her husband. So what's happened is over time, God's law, the rabbis have sort of built a law around that, and all those laws have been built to protect the husband, to give him easy outs. So in contrast to this easy out tradition, Jesus sets out God's design for marriage. And he says it's lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. And Jesus tells us in verse 6 why it is that marriage is so important. He says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Or if you've been to any traditional marriages in your life, you, know, you might hear the words, let not man put 
asunder. More traditional kind of King James-ish language. But the idea is, if God does this, we can't split it. Now let's jump out of kind of the, the marriage moment here for just a second and think about this. Why can you not, if you know Christ through faith, why can you not lose your salvation? It ain't because you're so faithful. I've heard it said that if we could lose our salvation, we would lose our salvation if it were up to us. You ever feel that? The reason that Paul says in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ is because of what he also says in Ephesians 1, that God has set his seal on us through the Spirit of God. In other words, if God seals that transaction, you can't undo it. If God declares that you are his child, if God adopts you, if God justifies you, if God cleanses you from your sin, you aren't powerful enough to undo what God has declared. That's why salvation works from beginning to end, because God is the one who does it. If it were just about our strength, our power, the power of our faith, we'd lose it. But God has accomplished it for us, and so he keeps us. It's what Paul talks about in Philippians 2, that the work he has begun in us, he will perform until the day of Jesus Christ. God guarantees salvation. So why is it that we can't break a marriage vow? It's because when you're standing there at the altar or in Vegas or before the judge or wherever, it's because in that moment there's a vow being made, but it's not just people witnessing that transaction. God himself is joining those two people together. Now, like salvation, it's not something that you can hear, sense, or or tangibly touch. But nevertheless, what Jesus says is God joins these two people together, and only God can undo something that God has sealed. In salvation, he promises he will not do that. In marriage, he says we must not do that. So if you find yourself struggling in marriage... God teaches that marriage, even a difficult marriage, a marriage covenant is worth fighting for. It's worth committing to. So when one man and one woman commit to each other in marriage, they're committing, but God himself is committing to that marriage. God himself is sealing that bond. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Well, why is this so important? Ephesians 5 perhaps the longest passage in Scripture about marriage relationships, husbands and wives. Husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands. Why? Because Christ himself loved the church and gave himself for her. You see, when we rip marriage, we tear the definition of of, of marriage. What we do is we pervert, we twist people's ability to see God's love for them in the gospel. Because marriage is a picture of the gospel. You see, the gospel teaches us that Christ died to save men and women who weren't worthy of his love, and yet he loved them anyway. And in marriage, any marriage, there'll be moments when your spouse isn't worthy of your love. When he or she will be so selfish that it'll feel impossible to love that person. But Christ died for men and women who are tempted to abandon their marriage vows people who are tempted to put all of their hope in marriage if they're not married. People who have walked through marriage and lost hope in marriage. 
Christ died to redeem us. And when we lose hope in marriage, sometimes it's easy to lose hope in God himself. And Christ died to show God's love for sinners, which is a picture of how we ought to live out our love in marriage. So let's get back to the question. Is divorce biblically allowable? Well, Jesus says the answer is yes. So marriage is important. It's sealed by God, but marriage is also hard. Verses 7 through 9. Now, if you've been married longer than 60 seconds, you already know this is true. You you didn't need someone else to tell you this. But verse 8 tells us why it's hard. Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Now, in any marriage, there's a temptation to think that that person is the reason this marriage is hard. But that's wrong. This person is the reason that marriage is hard. My, my biggest obstacle in any relationship isn't that person's sin, it's my sin. It's, it's, it's the selfishness and pride that I bring with me to the relationship. It's the fears and insecurity that I bring with me to that relationship. And this is true in any relationship. Now, what the Pharisees have done is what they're so good at doing. They kind of quote Moses, but they twist Moses' words. Because what do they say? Why does Moses require a certificate of divorce. But the law doesn't require that. Deuteronomy 24 allows for that. In other words, it's permitted but not required. And so now Jesus helps us understand the intent of this law. Now, now let's be real. This is a hard subject to, to address in any room, and particularly a room full of people. I mean, What we have sitting here are people who have all experienced marriage in different ways, either through our parents, through our own marriage, through loved ones. And sometimes those marriages, they kind of are fairy tale marriages. I was at uh, Bob Borm's 90th birthday yesterday and I walked in the door and I was talking to Sue and she said, you know, not only is he turning 90, we're to almost 68 years of marriage. And I got to say, there hasn't been a single sad day that was because of us. We've had sad days, but it wasn't because of this. It's just been a joy to be married to this man. What a gift of God that is, to have that kind of long, faithful, joyful marriage. But others of us had different experiences based on our experiences and relationships. And even if you're not personally in a broken marriage right now, the brokenness of marriage in our world touches everybody. You don't have to look very far. And you may today be experiencing a joyful marriage and yet see in your children something you, know, you wish they didn't have to go through. But the brokenness of marriage touches everyone. So what then does God say about divorce? Well, Malachi 2 tells us that God hates divorce. Because marriage is a picture of Christ's love for the church, and God never wants to give a poor picture of that love. If Satan can twist and distort our view of the gospel, he can dis- of marriage, he can also twist our view of the gospel itself. But God also knows that we live in a broken, fallen world, where bad things happen and where brokenness happens. And so Scripture gives us three cases in which divorce is biblically justifiable or allowable. The first, Jesus articulates pretty clearly here and also in Matthew 5. Adultery. Everyone who divorces his wife, he says, except on the ground of sexual immorality. So he leaves this clause. But this isn't the only place Scripture teaches. Jesus teaches this, but Scripture itself, all of Scripture is inspired, teaches as well that abandonment can be cause for divorce in 1 Corinthians 7. 
1 Corinthians 7.15, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. In other words, if someone either denies Christ or by their life denies Christ and walks out on a marriage, God's word allows justifiably for, the, for that person, for the, for, the, for the faithful partner, not to be bound in that case. And third, which is an, abu- it's an outworking of the same principle in 1 Corinthians 7, is abuse. So much of church history actually sees abuse as a form of abandonment. In other words, this person is abandoning their spouse by abusing their spouse. And when the abused spouse must leave for the sake of safety, there are exceptions. And I'll add briefly, and I don't have time to go into this all here, because some people may disagree with me on this, but I do believe that when a divorce is biblically justifiable or allowable, remarriage is possible. So we said marriage is hard because our hearts are hard. Well, why is any relationship hard? Because of our pride and selfishness. It's not just marriage, it's other relationships too. I was talking recently with one of our kids about a particular struggle in her life, and she was just sharing this with me, and at, at some level, just broken before the Lord about this, and she's like, Dad, why don't you and Mom struggle with sin like this? And I was like, you got it all wrong. I said, we do. I said, little kid's sin grows up and becomes adult sin. It just manifests itself in different ways in our lives. And we were talking, and, and you know, she looked a little confused, and I said, well, have you ever seen Daddy get impatient? be rude or irritable? Uh, yeah. That's my selfishness coming out. That's my pride coming out. It manifests itself in different ways, but kids grow up and they become adults and kid struggles manifest themselves and hopefully in in more mature ways, but in similar ways as kids struggle with. I said adults are like big kids with big kid problems. They're similar problems, they're just in different forms. You see, it doesn't matter if you're a child or an adult, you can't succeed in any relationship apart from the humility and love of Christ. Modeling Christ's love for each other is the only way that we can do this. And sometimes we do all we can in a marriage. We commit ourselves, we follow through, and we do everything we can, and yet the relationship can't succeed because the other person is hard-hearted. This does happen. But there are no doubt some people here this morning who need hope. Who need hope for their marriage. And if you find yourself this morning going through a difficult season, a season where it's hard to believe that this person loves you, let alone that God loves you, Spend some time in the book of Hosea. Hosea is just an unbelievably beautiful picture of the relentless, pursuing, unbelievable love of God for people who don't deserve his love. It's all about people who are unworthy, who are full of sin, people who have been adulterous, prone to leave the God they love, prone to wander around looking for other worship partners, people pursuing other people, pursuing other beings, idols, if you will. And yet the book of Hosea teaches us that God is a God who pursues people in love, not because they are worthy of his love, but because he himself is love. It is his nature to love. 
It is not our nature to be lovely, and yet God loves us because he is love. Hosea's wife is anything but lovable, yet God tells him to pursue her in love. And then if you're fighting for that joy and that love and that commitment in your marriage, seek to love your spouse in the same way that God loves you. If you do all this and you're still struggling, there is no shame whatsoever in reaching out for help. I tell people often that it can be a tricky thing to get a pin back in a grenade. But it's a lot harder to pick up the pieces after the grenade has gone off. And what often happens is people come and they're desperate and the grenade's gone off. Their kids, their relationships, their life, their family is blown to bits. It's really, really, really complex. You know, all the king's horses, all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. It's difficult. So if you find yourself here needing help, get help. We talk a lot about being a culture of grace. But that's not just something we talk about. It's something we're committed to living out. Which means that we're all sinners in a process of changing to become more like Christ in a world where it's really hard to do that. We want to love and serve each other in this. And let's talk briefly now about what you might call the gift of singleness. Sometimes it's called that. When Jesus talks about you know, how important it is to be committed in marriage, the disciples almost shake their heads. If it's, if it's this much work, it's better not to marry. If there's no easy way out, you know, it's better not to get involved at all. And it may feel like that at times. But then Jesus addresses another rather uncomfortable group, eunuchs. Now, thankfully, this isn't so much a category in culture for us today. But it was a fact that in first century culture, slaves could be made eunuchs. And it's still true that there are physical or genetic options where celibacy is really the only option. But let's talk briefly about the third category Jesus addresses, those who are celibate for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The Bible tells us that marriage is honored repeatedly. But God's word also says other times there are moments when a person may forego marriage for the sake of serving God wholeheartedly. Perhaps in a frontier mission setting where it wouldn't be safe, or perhaps in a particular ministry where it makes it difficult to care for a family. Well, this morning when John prayed for an offering, he mentioned a lady named Lottie Moon. Since 1845, Southern Baptist churches have given annually to a missions offering designed to support missions throughout the world. We sit here this morning, and you hear the name Jesus Christ. It's a name hopefully you're familiar with. It's a name you hear many times, and if you attend worship here, you ought to hear it a lot. But there are in the world today 4.5 billion unreached peoples. That means more of the world doesn't know the name of Christ, has no access to the gospel, than does have access to the gospel. It's an unbelievable, unreached, untapped mission field. And what Lottie Moon said was, that call is calling me. She was engaged briefly to a man named Crawford Toy. For both religious reasons as well as because of her missions call, she went overseas and pursued the spread of the gospel in China rather than follow through on this marriage relationship. Perhaps God may call some here to spread the gospel in a similar way, and God is calling all of us here to support the gospel spread in some way. So this brings us to a second main episode we have here, and Jesus focuses now not on the sanctity of marriage, but on the sanctity of children. Let's read verses 13 through 15. 
Verse 13, the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, and Jesus said, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. This is rather brief, so we're not going to spend a ton of time here, but we're going to return here because I think the key to understanding this chapter is right here in the middle. Now, we have a natural way of viewing importance. And so when kids are taking up Jesus' time, the disciples get impatient. They, They try to prevent the children from coming. It's true that Jesus had more demands than he could meet, more people to heal, more people to feed, more people to be raised, and there's always more to do. And it's common practice in this culture for, for parents to bring their children to rabbis to have them blessed. So no doubt this is happening a lot, and Jesus has a lot going on. Maybe they even feel like the children are interrupting important adult discussions. They try to prevent the children from coming. Jesus, though, has a rather different view of importance, doesn't he? Verses 14 and 15. In Matthew 18, Jesus had taught his disciples, unless you become like children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus not only believes in the sanctity of marriage, he believes in the value and importance of children. And in the end, it's not these big important disciples that Jesus holds up as examples. It's those little unimportant children that Jesus holds up. Now, we tend to have two responses when it comes to kids. On the one hand, we may idolize kids. We make a God out of our kids. We devote everything to our kids, and we don't really, we neglect God for the sake of our children. But on the other hand, we may neglect children. We may push them to the side. We may even avoid having them because we don't want to deal with that responsibility. And what Jesus says is, the point is that scripturally speaking, children matter to Jesus, and parents are the primary disciplers of their children. Now, this can happen in single-parent homes. It can happen in two-parent homes. It can happen in stay-at-home homes. It can stay working in the workplace homes. But Jesus says, and God's Word declares clearly, that the faith of our children, while it depends ultimately on the grace of God, depends secondarily and really importantly on the faith and love of those children's parents. The discipleship of our children is our responsibility. Now, it might seem real easy for me to stand up here and say this, But this is hard. It's hard to live a life of compelling faith with the people that see you get irritated. It's hard to live a life of compelling faith before the people that see you every day and that know you better than anyone else. It's hard to live a genuine life before the people that know when you get out of the car on Sunday morning, you say, hi, good morning. They know what happened in the car on the way to church. It's hard to live that out. But even more than that, it's hard to own the spiritual leadership of your family. Now you might say, well, it's easy for you to do because you're called to do it. It's not easy. And for 13 and a half years, it's been hard. There's, if, if there's anything I fear in life, it's failure. And so if there's anything I fear worse than simple failure, it's failing before those I know and love most. It's hard to sit down and get a bunch of people at a table and say, let's read the Bible together, and no one's excited about it, and you're making them do it. It's hard to do. It's hard to, 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 to speak of your faith as if it's real. It's, it's, it's hard to confess your sin before those who know you and love you. If this sounds autobiographical, it's because it is. 
It's not easy, but it's essential. And husbands, dads, let's be real here for a moment. Wife, mom, they tend to be real in tune with our kids, don't they? They tend to know what's going on, be concerned for their hearts. This is not something that we can foist off on them. It's something that God calls us to do. And it might start by saying, look, I messed up. I don't know how to do this. Let's try this together. And there are times when it's seasons of life like that. But God calls us to spiritually lead our homes and to care for and love and serve our children. And if you're afraid you'll fail, join the club. But God calls us to do this. God calls us to share our faith with our children. Let's not neglect this essential, essential task in the discipleship of our young ones. So this brings us to our final story, the story of the rich young ruler where Jesus tells us about the danger of money, verses 16 through 30. Behold, a young man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. What do you give the man who has everything? This man is still looking for life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus confronts this young man with, with a, a tricky idea, and it's tricky today too, because the man says, thinks he's good, and Jesus says to him, you're not truly good. It's not that he hasn't done any good things. This man has no doubt done a lot of good things, but Romans 3 tells us that no one is truly good. Sin touches every part of our beings. So when the young man asks, what good deed must I do? He's saying, as a good person, what other good thing must I do? And Jesus sets out to demonstrate for him, verse 17, there is only one who is truly good, and it's not you. In doing so, he confronts this man's idols. This man has two idols. One is his upright image, a person of good standing, a, a, a good man in the church and in his community. And he also has a second idol of financial security. So Jesus tells him to keep the commands to enter life. God's word promises at least six times that if you can keep the commandments, you can have eternal life. 
but no one can. Now, this young man thinks he can, but the point is not that we must keep these commandments according to our standards, but according to God's. Have you ever had the experience where uh, you, t- you told your child, go clean your room? They come back 10 minutes later, mom, dad, it's clean. And you go, and it ain't clean. What's the problem? Their standards, your standards. Jesus says, you have to keep the commandments. He says, I've kept them. And Jesus says, your standards, God's standards. You haven't really kept the commandments. You see, Jesus in the end says, you must sell all that you have and follow me. But the man leaves sad because he had great possessions. He's focused on external religion, not murdering, not committing adultery. Yet his response betrays the fact that he's broken the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Jesus then speaks to his disciples a hard saying, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Camels are the largest animal in Palestine. It's the largest animal they're familiar with. They didn't have blue whales or elephants. So to take a camel and fit it through the eye of a needle is impossible. But if we pause and think, are there any rich people in heaven? Well, Abraham is in heaven. David. Moses. Even Zacchaeus made it to heaven. So what does Jesus mean? First century people believed that rich people get to heaven because God has blessed them with riches, and that's a sign that God has blessed them. But Jesus says that simply having money won't save you. So the disciples respond, who can be saved? And Jesus responds, it's impossible, humanly speaking. But with God, all things are possible. You see, salvation is possible not through any other means, but it is possible through God's plan of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Nothing else. There's no other way. So if you're here relying on anything else to save you, having faith in anything, especially your own goodness, would you turn from your faith and trust Jesus alone? Well, Peter's not going to let this one pass without comment. He speaks up as he often does. Verse 27. Well, what about us, Jesus? We've sacrificed so much. We've left it all. We left our fishing nets. What about us? Jesus gives two promises, one for the disciples. You'll sit on 12 thrones and one for everyone. Everyone will receive a hundredfold. Now, this isn't a literal promise as in you give one dollar and you get a hundred back because if you leave mother, you don't get a hundred mothers back. But he's saying those who sacrifice for the kingdom will be eternally blessed beyond anything you could imagine. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. All right. Now, as we wrap this up here, let's think just for a moment about the middle story about the children. Maybe you, like me, get concerned about adult things. Paying bills. Difficult relationships. Life. And sometimes when the cares of life get really heavy, the only thing that brings joy is the laughter of a child. Now imagine with me that you're going through, through, through a difficult moment and you walk in the door and you hear the laughter of a child and in that laughter you hear joy, you hear freedom, you hear trust, you hear, you, you hear love, you hear hope. 
and try to capture that feeling and imagine what it would be if you set aside what it means to be adult, the marriage problems, the the money problems, the cares of life, you set those aside, the things that capture so much of our attention, and you focus on what it meant to have joyful, hopeful, trust-filled, childlike love for Jesus. What does it look like to pursue childlike faith in your relationship with Christ? Jesus says that childlike trust is the key to enjoying life in his kingdom. So let's take a moment now and respond to God's word and repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.